Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest Smart Leverage Magic podcast. It's lovely to have you with me, as always. And uh, I've mentioned a couple of times in the last couple of months the fact that I've been a professional magician for 40 years. I'm sort of reasonably proud of that longevity. Um, But when you compare it to somebody such as Mark Raffles, who's just turned 100 and who actually only retired at the age of 97, it really does put my uh, little time in magic into perspective. In fact, it led me to think about what the issues must be the older that you get when you are a magician, because I'm in my mid 60s. So I'm already experiencing the difference between myself as a magician and as a person, but also as a magician at that age as compared to when I was in my 20s, say. Certain things that in my 20s I found extremely easy, suddenly I'm realising that they're not quite so easy anymore. And you start to think, hmm, well, as in life, so in magic, you know, your body gradually degrades, doesn't it, as you get older and certain things become more difficult. And that translates itself, of course, directly into your, your magic life as well. I mean, something simple like I've noticed that as you get older, your, your fingers tend to get a little bit stiffer. Uh, and this is not talking about having arthritis or anything like that, because fortunately I don't personally have that. And I'm very lucky not to. But and I know I've had customers who've talked to me about the limitations that it puts on what they can do when they do have bad arthritis. But your fingers, nevertheless, even if you haven't got that, they do get a little bit stiffer. And you suddenly realise that whereas you used to be able to do an up-in-the-air riffle shuffle, suddenly you realise that you you don't have the strength or the sensitivity even in your fingers to do it properly anymore. And so what I find myself doing is is changing the type of card shuffles that I do to make sure that I'm not exposed in that way and trying to do something that I'm no longer capable of. And then your eyesight goes, doesn't it? So your eyesight... You, you don't need it necessarily all the time for magic, but you like reading the back deck, the mark deck, the backs of cards. Yes, you, you need it for that. But it's not just that, is it? Uh, in my particular case, my near vision, actually, I don't need glasses for. That's great. That's marvellous. But for longer distance driving, going to the cinema, watching TV, I do wear glasses. So the difficulty that I have is that If I put glasses on so that when I'm performing, I can see the audience clearly or I can look across a room and see the table numbers on various tables from a distance. The trouble is, if I put them on for that, then when I look down at my hands, everything's a bit of a blur and I can't see properly. Now, I can I could get by focus, I suppose, although people do say that can be tricky trying to get used to that. But what I've decided to do is to not wear glasses. So I might not be able to see some of the further away members of the audience as clearly as I might like, but at least when I look down at my hands and I'm looking at what I'm doing, I can see clearly pretty much what I'm actually looking like and what people are seeing. Because otherwise, I think that's how you make a lot of mistakes, isn't it? You're flashing stuff without realising it because you don't actually see what you're doing. And then, of course, your hearing goes, doesn't it? Yeah, so if a spe- if you're doing close-up and a spectator makes some funny comment and you mishear it and you s- respond either inappropriately or just incorrectly because you didn't hear what they said or they speak to you and you don't hear them at all, that can be kind of awkward too as a performer, can't it? It's not super essential if you're up on a stage to be able to hear what the audience say, but certainly when you're working close-up, I think it probably is. 
And then, of course, your memory goes, doesn't it? You know, you can't you can't remember sometimes the certain lines or little sequences. Now, motor memory is great because if the tricks that you do a lot, you do them automatically. But of course, if you pause and start to think about what you're doing, sometimes you realize that actually I can't remember what I do next because you've thought about it and your memory has just lost that little bit of information. It comes back usually, but perhaps not as readily as it might have done, of course, when you're younger. And then you've got things like just being old fashioned, either in the way you dress, long, I think personally, as long as it's appropriate for your age, I don't actually have a problem with that. But others may look at you and think, oh dear, looks a bit old fashioned. Or in jokes that you make or patter that you use, that can get outdated and you, to you it still feels suitable or, or even current sometimes when in fact the world has moved on and it isn't and trying to be aware of that can be quite difficult as well. So there, there are lots of things that, uh, that you suddenly start to notice. I mean, one thing I've noticed, for instance, that I no longer like doing, say, three hours table hopping because I get backache standing up all that time. Ridiculous, but that's what happens. So for younger, younger people, don't think any of any probably have any of the issues of most of these things, unless they're unfortunate. And you just go out and you just do your stuff and you, and you, you don't consider it at all. And then as you get older, your, your emphasis, the emphasis shifts and you do start to think about these things and you do start to sometimes worry a little bit about how, you know, at, at what point do I have to change things? But then you see people like, for instance, I just mentioned Mark Raffles or even John Calvert, who was still performing at, at 97, 98. Absolutely incredible people. These people are inspirational because they have found ways to get round the various limitations that their uh, age has presented to them and still imagine uh, managed to be excellent performers. One of the things that we magicians love to do when we're performing is to get our audiences to examine some of the props that we're using. And I've often wondered whether we do it a little bit too much or whether we do it for the wrong reasons. I mean, I think there are some tricks, but illusions, for example, say like the sub trunk. It's up on a stage as a big box and sometimes performers get a couple of members of the audience to come onto the stage and examine the box. Bang it at the back, bang it at the sides, examine the class that was going to, to make sure they're genuine padlocks and so on. And you could argue a good case here for saying, well, because the box is at a distance, if somebody doesn't come and examine it, then the, the audience might come to the simplistic, but actually slightly accurate, it has to be said, conclusion that it's just a special box. Not the whole secret, of course, but nevertheless, it would perhaps reduce the impact of the trick. But then, of course, you can't have all illusions examined. So why have that one examined if the next trick that you do, where you're pushing swords through a different type of box, you can't have examined? It, it leads you to think, well, OK, so that one must be an ordinary box. This one clearly isn't an ordinary box because they've not let anybody examine it. So you could say that by having one examined, it's made the next trick where you haven't had it examined not so convincing. Perhaps. I don't know. Don't know whether audiences analyze it as much as that, but it's possible. And when you come and take that down to close up, now there are certain things that are so well made 
that they can be examined. In fact, what made me think get into this train of thought was I've just written a review for the next issue of Magic Scene of John Cornelius's um, The Perfect Pen, which is the pen through anything, the version of the pen through anything, where the pen is beautiful and it, it, it can be examined both before and after the trick because the gimmicking of the pen is so clever that nobody's ever going to find it if they don't know the secret. The thing is, it looks like a totally normal, sort of nice, but normal pen. It's not a Sharpie, it's a silver pen, and it looks quite classy, and to all intents and purposes, and you can write with it. So to all intents and purposes, you don't really need to have it examined. But the temptation is to have it examined because that way, it's almost like saying, this is not a special pen. In fact, you can examine it, and then you do a miracle with it. But the trouble is, by having it examined, then it could be that because it looks normal, you've now made it look more suspicious. Well, why have I got to look at a pen? Well, why, why would I need to look at this? Could be the thought going through a spectator's mind. So I think we need to be a little bit careful, don't we, with w what objects we get looked at and what objects we don't. Is there a good reason? Or is it actually what it's really doing in some cases either making the, the item look more suspicious than it would otherwise have been thought of by the audience, or it's just slowing down the action. It's just making everything a little bit more ponderous, taking a bit longer than is necessary to actually perform the trick. So I don't quite know what the answer to this is. I don't know where that balance is. So I think there are some tricks where you, if you're using an unusual object, Let's say, for example, I, I always have my Akita box. I have an Akita box routine I use in Walkabout. I always have the box examined because it's an unusual looking prop. Although it's a little box, it's not like anything in the real world, to be honest. And I say, oh, a little brass box. Have a look at that. It's old, isn't it? It's quite heavy for its size. And, and I make a feature out of it because it's not gimmicked. And so I'm able to do this and then I can do stuff with it. And the, the people who have examined the box know that it, as far as they could see, it was ordinary, and yet these impossible things happen with it. So even if they are suspicious that it's still a special box, at least they have had it examined. But there are other props that you think, like the pen, where perhaps getting it examined does make things almost more suspicious than they would otherwise have been. So I think possibly having just one or two things looked at, but for a very specific reason, is probably better than just making lots and lots of, handing out lots and lots of things and making everything almost appear to be examinable when in fact it isn't really necessary. Now, as I'm sure you know, there are particular types of magicians called magic collectors. And these people have an absolute passion for collecting all types of different magic. You think of someone like David Copperfield, who of course is in immensely rich and who can afford to buy just about anything he wants. He's got an incredible museum of it in which he stores all these priceless artifacts from magic's history. And then also in America, somebody whose house I've been to on more than one occasion, Mark D'Souza. He's also got a fantastic collection. And just walking around the corridors at the back of his house there, it's, it's, it's incredible the range of magic that he's managed to collect over the years. But actually, apart from proper magic collectors who almost make an art form out of it, most of us are collectors in a way, aren't we? 
or is it hoarders rather than collectors? I'm not quite sure. Because I would reckon that most of us, I know it's true of me and I'm sure it's true of you, if you've been in magic any sort of amount of time, you will somewhere in your house have cases, boxes, crates, drawers, cupboards that are full of magic. And some of this magic, when you come across it as you're rummaging for something, you'll look at it and A, you won't remember buying it probably. And secondly, you're wondering what on earth it is. What are these five cards with no instructions next to them? What, what are they supposed to, they're a bit bent now, but what are they supposed to have done when they were new? I think it's incredible, really. I think we all get seduced by the latest miracles. We see something at a convention or on a dem online and we kid ourselves a lot of the time that we actually have a use for it as a way of justifying the, the expense of actually buying the thing in the first place. So you get it home, don't you? And you excitedly you open it up and you learn its secret. And, and, but unless it's something that is really, really, really good and that fits perfectly into our act, the chances are that box, cupboard, drawer, case, whatever it is, is where that item is going to end up. Sometimes, sometimes, and this, uh, this has happened to me on one occasion, I didn't even open the packet. I thought, I'm, I'll get to that. And I found it like a year later and I still hadn't opened it, which is appalling. I hate myself for that. But it, I just never got round to it, which is ridiculous. And you've only got to see the popularity of you know, magic clubs of secondhand sales. People are taking stuff that they thought they wanted and then discover that, no, it wasn't for them. And we've all got masses of stuff. So if you go to your this, this case, big case, and you open it up and it's, keep it up in the loft and you open it up and you find all these ancient magic props, that you, half of which, as I say, you don't know what they do. What is stopping you from either throwing them away or selling them or just, why is it we look at them and we go through and then we shut the case and put the case back? The reason probably is because it's kind of part of our magical history, our own personal route through our magic life, isn't it? I know for me, some of the things in these boxes are, are tricks that I made when I was a teenager. I made some, uh, not, they weren't out of wood, they were out of cardboard, some children's effects that I invented. And I made them, and I remember doing them in my show. I am never, ever, ever going to do these tricks again. But as soon as I pick that cardboard-shaped prop out and I look at it, it brings black of back a flood of memories of how I used to use it and what I used to do with it and so that's the reason that you can't it's sentimentality isn't it it's not practicality at all it's like anything else in your life certain clothes pieces of clothing or other objects lying around your house that you're never going to use and you don't really want but you kind of can't throw them away and it's certainly true of magic and there are so many I've got whole bags crammed full of gimmicks of coin or coins that are no longer current coinage why am i keeping it i could just throw it in the bin and yet there's something that just holds me back a little bit sometimes it's because you think not so much with the coins but with other things oh i might have a use for that one day and that's my justification for shutting the box and putting it back where it was but the truth of the matter is i think it is it's just sentimentality you get attached to these things because it reminds you of the past, reminds you of things that, that you used to perform and you can't throw your past away, can you? 
I'm recording this podcast towards the end of January and at this stage Blackpool Convention still goes ahead which is amazing. In fact they're currently announcing more acts and hyping the event even more. I don't know what the numbers are going to be like. I mean in the past they've had 3,000 plus people turn up over the long weekend whether it be a bit less this time, because I would imagine that some people from overseas in particular may find the restrictions on travel perhaps in their country or getting into the UK may still be a bit difficult. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm sure there's a, a real pent-up desire by certainly magicians who can get there in the UK to attend a live event. And when you think that, for instance, Vanishing Inks The Session uh, they had to postpone that or they felt that they needed to in December for their January convention. It's now being pushed to the summer and they had to, because of the time constraints and so on, they had to make a decision where they're going to go ahead or where they're going to postpone it there and then before it was too late. And they had to make a decision. And I, I think it would appear anyway that they, they second guessed what the government was going to do in December. And they thought that uh, the government was going to shut things down. In fact, the opposite happened. So it might have been able to go ahead. Nevertheless, Blackpool does seem, as the restrictions in the UK have been reduced even more, does seem to be going ahead. Now, it'll either turn out to be a fantastic event for all of us, or it'll end up being a fantastic event for all of us, but also a super spreader event. Who knows? Uh, if the normal numbers turn up, it's certainly going to be fairly busy and crowded. You think about the dealer halls, for instance, where everybody's literally rammed up against each other. If people aren't wearing masks, even if they are, to be honest, then if there is the virus is going to spread, it's certainly going to spread there. So I wonder whether it's you know, wise to go. I, I shall be going. Magic Scene has a stand. The guys will be there running that. I shall be there as, as a visitor and, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. But you do sort of wonder whether Blackpool, I, it could be just that because it's in February, if they'd had their, were having their convention in January, maybe they too would have had to have postponed. But then another convention that I go to, 4Fs in the United States, that's at the end of April. They've already postponed that back in January. So that's not going ahead this year at all. And we've all got to wait yet another year for the 50th event to actually take place. So it seems that COVID is still having an effect on the magic world in, in different ways. Shows are coming through a bit more, at least the inquiries for shows are, which is great as people gradually get more confident that they can hold events. But we're not out of the woods yet, are we? And we don't know whether it's going to be a false dawn as it was last year where the middle of the year we seem to go we seem to be heading in the right direction and then it all had to be restricted again anyway if you're going to Blackpool and you happen to see me if we're if, assuming the event does go ahead as planned then do say hello uh, it's always nice now that I don't have my own dealer stand there anymore I'm a bit freer to chat and uh, to wander around and uh, hopefully I'll get to, to see you and we can uh, say hello now tell me, do you ever suffer from website rage? It's a bit like road rage. It's, it's just that rather than when you're driving, you get the same sort of feelings when you're dealing with certain websites. I'm sure we've all had the experience where you go to a commercial website, sometimes for very quite big companies, and all you want to do is either find out a little bit of information about something 
or place a simple order for something and because of the way the website's been designed and the way that it's laid out and the way that it either functions or doesn't function you find yourself spending ages and ages trying to work out how to do the simple task that you hoped would only take a few minutes and sometimes you even end up going round in circles you click from one link to the next to the next and you end up back where you started with no further forward that sort of experience is so annoying and sometimes you get to the to the point as well where you place you finally after going through so many setting up of usernames and passwords and all the rest of it and you finally get to the point where you've placed your order and then it freezes and you're not quite sure whether the order went through or not now i know technology can backfire at any time but sometimes it's the it's not the technology it's not the internet connection it's the way the the website's been designed that i think is at fault and it leads you to think well how many people who have websites to promote their shows are causing people who go to those websites to feel a little bit of website rage as well you know you've got a booker who's excited about booking something to do with weddings goes to your website can they easily find all the information they need about what you do for weddings quickly simply is it informative are the videos in the right place do they work you know there's there's so many little aspects which can either put somebody off if they don't work or will engage with people if they do have you ever tried for instance getting somebody who is a friend of yours but who doesn't really go on your website have you ever asked them to go onto your website and try and find out some information or make an inquiry just to see and then let them feed back to you what the experience was like because i think when when we not so much creator you don't do the coding probably but when you sort out what you want with a website because you know how to work your own way around it you may not realize that there are certain things to do with it which mean that the person coming to it for the first time is very puzzled by how the whole thing works it might be nowhere near as intuitive as you think so by getting somebody who can feed honestly back to you and who doesn't know the process of, the, of how their website was put together and what it's supposed to do and just goes cold to it could be very revealing because it might show you that there are certain things that could be improved i mean it may well be that everything's absolutely fine it's, oh it's brilliant i could find the information i want it was easy to 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 then know what to do next because that's one thing that a lot of websites they look beautiful they have all the information but they don't always make it absolutely clear how the booker proceeds how do they make an inquiry what's the call to action what's the next thing they need to do it might be on the home page but they may be two or three pages into the website somewhere and all that information is not there it's not on the navigation bar at the top or down the side and then they have to go back to the home page to find how what they're supposed to do by which time they may have got bored and left and gone somewhere else so i think it's actually quite a useful exercise to do it's it's something that probably most of us because we don't physically make our websites ourselves um, ever think about but uh, i do think that sometimes what is obvious to us may not be obvious to others and that it really does pay to get somebody else to have a look at it to make sure yours is up to scratch one of my favorite things to do every month is to create new material for the members of eclub pro my online club 
And this sort of creative process that I need to go through every month to find a few new things to present to them is one of the most enjoyable things that I do. And over the years, I've gradually refined, if that's the right word, the, the way that I go about this. If you read my book, A Simple Guide to Creativity, I, I break it all down, actually, and go into quite a few different ways of approaching being a bit creative and coming up with new variations or new ideas. But my favourite way, and the way that I use the most these days, is where I basically just imagine what I want to be able to do as a magician. In other words, imagine even, a, a, not a complete plot necessarily, but just a magical moment. I'd like to be able to make this change colour to this, or whatever it might be, something fairly basic like that. And then work from there back to a method. But of course, what you need, if you're going to take this approach, you actually need a reasonably good imagination, don't you? And one of the, the hardest things that I find is to not restrict what I let my imagination imagine. Because the tendency is you think, well, there's no point in me thinking about how to change a giraffe into an elephant because I have absolutely no idea how to do that and I don't have a giraffe or an elephant. So you, I'm not going to think about that. Well, OK, an extreme example. But if you restrict yourself to what you only know already, then that's not being very imaginative, is it? And it's not pushing the boundaries out and it's not going to help you very much to come up with anything particularly new or special. Because in order to do that, you, you need to let your imagination, I think, just go nuts. Just think about whatever you want to think about and get, get that image of a trick. And what I find is, as long as I've got something to start with, it may not be what I end up with. In fact, it often isn't. But it, it needs a starting point because if it's a bit like when you're going to write something, if you have your screen in front of you and a blank page, if you like, and that little blinking cursor symbol waiting for you to type something, the hardest bit often is starting. You might have some sort of a vague idea about what you want to say, but you've not written anything yet. And that moment where you, I've got to get on, I've got to start it. And sometimes the best way is just literally to start writing some sentences. And sometimes you think, no, actually, that's not how I wanted to express that. So you delete it and you start again. But at least you've started the, the process of getting your brain into gear to think about what, what you want to write. And the same is with being creative with magic. I think if you can think about an idea, a, a potential plot or a potential magical moment and start to then think about all the different ways that you might achieve this through what you know already or what you can find out. Sometimes what happens is in the course of doing that, something else will occur to you that will take you off at a completely different tangent. And that's what happens to me more often than not. What I start with is nearly always very different from what I end up with. Doesn't mean to say that what I end up with is worse. It's just different from what I imagined when I started. But if I hadn't had that moment where I thought I want to try this, then I wouldn't have had any thought processes or any experimentation at all. And therefore I would never ended up where I did, in fact, in the end, sort of finish. 
So having a good imagination and letting that imagination run right and then using, if you've got some experience of magic and you know a load of methods, sometimes you can find a solution to something very quickly and something really very good can come of just bringing together elements that you know already and putting them in a slightly different way to achieve something a little bit different. It's not rocket science, it's not super new, it's not incredibly novel, but it's really interesting and it might mean that you end up creating something that is either slightly different in plot or very different in method, but it will be a bit different. And that's, I find that really satisfying to think that that's possible. But none of it would be possible if it wasn't for the fact that that imagining at, right at the start, if that doesn't happen, then the rest of it doesn't come in play, fall into place. So if you want to be creative, then get a piece of paper. And if you really genuinely think, I, I want to invent three tricks, let's say, write down some plots or write down some magical um, moments that you would like to be able to make happen, no matter how outlandish they are, and then start to hone in on the various ideas and see how close you can get to realising a method that will make these things work, or if not those things, the things that you then go off to at a tangent. Well, we've come to the end of another podcast. Thank you very much for spending the last half an hour listening to my uh, ramblings. It's been a pleasure to have you along. If you are going to the Blackpool Convention and you happen to see me, do say hello. It's always nice to, to have a chat with people, as I mentioned earlier. And let's hope the whole thing does go ahead and that it's a big success. If you have any ideas about things you'd like me to chat about or have any comments about the things that I've um, had in this podcast or in any of the earlier ones, which are all, most, a lot of which are available on my website, then do send me an email to magic at markleverage.co.uk and let me know your thoughts. In the meantime, I hope to see you here again next month for the March podcast. Have a good month.